is Americana. Whatever the exact particulars, the definite event on that 12th of February, 1809, was the birth of a boy they called Abram, after his grandfather who had been killed by Indians. Born in silence and pain from a wilderness mother, on a bed of perhaps corn husks and perhaps hen feathers, with perhaps a laughing child prophecy later that he would never come to much. The words you have just heard are from Carl Sandberg's biography, Abraham Lincoln. This program is Americana, the 18th in a series of radio essays on the American scene presented each week by Northwestern University in cooperation with station WMAQ. Tonight, we bring you Mr. Lincoln. Good evening. I'm Martin Maloney of the School of Speech at Northwestern University. Tonight, and I'm sure it will surprise nobody, we're celebrating a birthday. The birthday of a man, to be sure, but more significant than this, the birthday of a legend. The man's life goes back to February 12th, 1809. The legend, constantly refreshed, is as new as the newest book on Abram Lincoln, and that may well be Carl Sandburg's one-volume biography from which we take this birthday story. One morning in February 1809, Tom Lincoln came out of his cabin to the road, stopped a neighbor and asked him to tell the granny woman and Peggy Walters that Nancy would need help soon. On the morning of February 12th, the Sunday, the granny woman was at the cabin, and she and Tom Lincoln, the moaning Nancy Hanks, welcomed into a world of battle and blood, of whispering dreams and wistful dust, a new child, a boy. Dennis Hanks, then nine years old, took to his feet down the road to the Lincoln cabin. He listened to the crying of the newborn child once in the night and the feet of the father moving on the dirt floor to help the mother and the little one. In the morning, he took a long look at the baby and said to himself, its skin looks just like red cherry pulp squeezed dry in wrinkles. He asked if he could hold the baby. Nancy, as she passed the little one into Dennis's arms, said, Be careful, Dennis. You are the first boy that he's ever seen. Dennis swung the baby back and forth, keeping up a chatter about how tickled he was to have a new cousin to play with. Well, the baby screwed up its face and began crying with no let-up. Dennis turned to Betsy Sparrow, handed her the baby, and said, And you take him. He'll never come to much. Whatever the exact particulars, the definite event on that 12th of February, 1809, was the birth of a boy they named Abraham after his grandfather, who had been killed by Indians. Born in silence and pain from a wilderness mother on a bed of perhaps corn husks and perhaps hen feathers, with perhaps a laughing child prophecy later that he would never come to much. Tonight, on the 12th of February, it's inevitable that we talk about Mr. Lincoln. It is, 
Well, I'd almost said it is altogether fitting and proper that we do this, a turn of phrase which in itself indicates how detailed and compulsive on Americans the influence of Lincoln has become. Our common attitudes of admiration, almost worship of Lincoln, are nearly obligatory. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this. In America, and to a great extent in the world, the idea of Lincoln has become a kind of intellectual and spiritual center. It is now 146 years since Lincoln's birth and 90 since his death. Yet in this brief space of time, the man has been so thoroughly converted into legend that it's nearly impossible to penetrate to the actualities of his life. Perhaps from the point of view of a Lincoln scholar, I'm being a little naive in saying this. When Carl Sandburg revised his six-volume Life of Lincoln into a one-volume study, he wrote a new preface to the book in which he remarked on these matters of fact-finding and canonization. A national event was the opening at midnight on July 26, 1947. The unveiling, as some termed it, of the long-secret Robert T. Lincoln collection in the Library of Congress. The 14 Lincoln scholars and authors present agreed that while no new light of importance was shed on Lincoln... The documents deepened and sharpened the outlines of the massive and subtle Lincoln as previously known. When I mentioned to Paul Engel, a cynical editorial writer referring to us as hagiographers or saint worshippers, Paul said, We could use a few real saints in this country right now, and it's nice to live in a country where you can pick the saints you prefer to worship, just so long as you don't interfere with other saint worshippers. And I suppose this states the matter as happily as it can be stated. We need, any nation needs, a few secular saints. And in the figure of Lincoln, we've found the one life which most successfully exhibits the characteristics of saintliness as we understand them. What these characteristics are, we may easily see as we leaf through any of the currently available books on Lincoln. Of these, of course, there are whole libraries. A friend of mine the other day told me that the best bibliography of books and pamphlets about Lincoln which was published over ten years ago, lists more than 4,000 items. A vast amount of paper and printer's ink indeed has gone into the making of this legend. But let me suggest to you two books which are inexpensive and readily available almost everywhere. One is Stephen Laurent's The Life of Abram Lincoln, which first came out last year and has recently been reprinted in paper covers as a signet key book by the New American Library. The other is Paul Angle's The Lincoln Reader, a very carefully edited anthology of writings about Lincoln, which was originally published in 1947 and has now been reprinted by Pocket Books. As we leaf through the Angle collection, we can pick out almost at random the salient points in the Lincoln legend. Here is the great man who became great through his own efforts, the wise man whose wisdom was cultivated in the simplest of schools. The books that Lincoln read and reread in his boyhood had a marked influence upon his life. There was the Bible, first of all, the basis of his pure literary style, and the foundation of his system of righteousness expressed in law. There were Pilgrim's Progress and Aesop's Fables. There was Weems' Life of Washington, at which people smile, but which did good to Abraham Lincoln and many another lad. There was Robinson Crusoe, and the history of the United States. If we could substitute a better life of Washington and a modern history of the United States, 
It would be for the profit of any American boy if he were shut up with these half-dozen books and no others until he thoroughly mastered them. They were an almost ideal selection. And then, a few pages later on, there's Herndon's portrait of Lincoln in New Salem. Lincoln the rail splitter. Lincoln the powerful giant who reluctantly whipped Jack Armstrong in a stand-up fight. In the neighborhood of the village, or rather a few miles to the southwest, lay a strip of timber called Clary's Grove. The boys who lived there were a terror to the entire region, seemingly a necessary product of frontier civilization. Though there was never under the sun a more generous parcel of rowdies, a stranger's introduction to them was likely to be the most unpleasant part of his acquaintance with them. They conceded leadership to one Jack Armstrong, a hearty, strong, and well-developed specimen of physical manhood, and under him, they were in the habit of cleaning out New Salem whenever his order went forth to do so. Offutt and Billy Clary, the latter skeptical of Lincoln's strength and agility, ended a heated discussion in the store one day over the new clerk's ability to meet the tactics of Clary's Grove by a bet of ten dollars that Jack Armstrong was, in the language of the day, a better man than Lincoln. The contest was to be a friendly one, and fairly conducted. All New Salem adjourned to the scene of the wrestle. Money, whiskey, knives, and all manner of property were staked on the result. It is unnecessary to go into the details of the encounter... Everyone knows how it ended, how at last the tall and angular rail splitter, enraged at the suspicion of foul tactics and profiting by his height and the length of his arms, fairly lifted the great bully by the throat and shook him like a rag. How by this act he established himself solidly in the esteem of all New Salem and secured the respect, admiration, and friendship of the man he had so thoroughly vanquished. And then, of course, there's the celebrated matter of Lincoln's jokes. He was a tragic man, but full of rural comedy, the sort of laughter that we all understand, the kind that is used to ease sorrow and strain. Stephen Laurent, in his biography of Lincoln, has an entire chapter called His Character, in which the Lincoln humor is heavily stressed. He seemed simple, yet he was complex. He spoke little, thought much. He read little, yet he knew much. He said once, I'm slow to learn and slow to forget that which I've learned. My mind is like a piece of steel, very hard to scratch anything on it, and <laughs> almost impossible after you get it there to rub it out. When he read something, he, he liked to read it aloud. Asked about this habit, he replied, I catch the idea by two senses. For when I read aloud, I hear what's read and I see it. And hence, two senses get it. And I remember it better, even if I don't understand it better. He was kind, magnanimous, self-controlled, humble. But he had no false modesty. Aware of his gifts, he was convinced of his own superiority. John Hay, who observed him for years said that it would be absurd to call Lincoln a modest man. No great man is ever modest. It was his intellectual arrogance and unconscious assumption of superiority that men like Chase and Sumner could never forgive. For Lincoln, 
Laughter was a life preserver. Laughter was, as he once described it, Laughter is the joyous, beautiful, universal evergreen of life. Without laughter, Lincoln couldn't have lived. Lincoln never told a joke for the joke's sake, said Secretary of State Seward. They are like parables, lessons of wisdom. They say I tell many stories... Well, I reckon I do, but I've learned from long experience that the plain people, taken as they run, are more easily influenced through the medium of a broad and humorous illustration than in any other way. And what the hypercritical few may think, I don't care. Of course, the greatest of the Lincoln hagiographers, the greatest of the myth-makers... I use the expression in its best and most friendly sense, has been Carl Sandburg. I don't know just how Sandburg became involved with Lincoln. There's no other word that describes the relationship. It seems to have been inevitable. Perhaps it was because, as Sandburg recounts in his autobiography, he used to see a man on the streets of Galesburg, Illinois, who was always pointed out with the remark, he used to know Abe Lincoln. Maybe it was because he grew up in Illinois, a place marked forever with the impress of Lincoln's life. But whatever the explanation, Sandberg and Lincoln have gradually become one. As an article in the current Newsweek remarks, it's a little hard to tell in the Sandberg biography just where Lincoln leaves off and Sandberg begins. For my part, I think Sandberg's work enormously valuable. Like Paul Angle, I believe that we need a few saints to serve us as models. One of Lincoln's greatest bequests to his country has been a sort of Lincoln-esque character type. How many good Americans, and sometimes great ones, have quite unconsciously, for the most part, reshaped their lives, their attitudes, their deeds into the pattern set by Lincoln? This is a crude and inadequate way to describe a most complex and subtle process, but I shan't try to improve upon it here. For there's a simple way to describe the connection between Carl Sandburg and Abraham Lincoln. As Sandberg himself tells us, somewhere around the end of the First World War, he got the idea of writing a book about Lincoln, a short and simple book for children. He should have known, I suppose, what would happen. He spent 16 years writing his simple book. It came out in six volumes. The first two were called Abram Lincoln, the Prairie Years, and the last four, Abram Lincoln, the War Years. Sixteen years. It was almost exactly the interval between one world war and another, I won't pretend to discuss these books with you except to say one thing. Sandberg's Lincoln is honest and careful work, but it's not academic scholarship. It's poetry. His new one-volume Life of Lincoln, which is a great deal more than a simple condensation of the earlier six volumes, is also, I suspect, the longest and one of the best epic poems ever written in America. But I think that one of the most moving passages in all Sandberg's work is that part of the prairie years which tells how Abram Lincoln, newly elected president of the United States, left his home in Illinois, never to return. falling in the morning of February 11th, 
when Lincoln and his party of 15 were to leave Springfield on the 8 o'clock at the Great Western Railway Station. Chilly gray mist hung the circle of the prairie horizon. A short little locomotive with a flat-topped smokestack stood puffing with a baggage car and a special passenger car hitched on. A railroad president and superintendent were on board. A thousand people crowded in and around the brick station, inside of which Lincoln was standing. And one by one came hundreds of old friends, shaking hands, wishing him luck and Godspeed. All faces were solemn. Even Judge David Davis, weighing 350 pounds, wearing a new white silk hat, was a serious figure. A path was made for Lincoln from the station to his car. Hands stretched out for one last handshake. He hadn't intended to make a speech. But on the platform of the car as he turned and saw his home people, he took off his hat, stood perfectly still, looked almost as he had at the Bowling Green burial services, when tears had to take the place of words. He raised a hand for silence. They stood with hats off. Then he said slowly, amid the soft gray drizzle from the sky. Friends, no one who's never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this parting. For more than a quarter of a century, I've lived among you. And during all that time, I've received nothing but kindness at your hands. Here I've lived from my youth to now I'm an old man. Here the most sacred trusts of earth were assumed. Here all my children were born. And here one of them lies buried. To you, dear friends, I owe all that I have and all that I am. All the strange checkered past seems to crowd upon my mind. Today I leave you. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon General Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with and aid me, I must fail. But if the same omniscient mind and the same almighty arm that directed him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. I shall succeed. Let us all pray that the God of our fathers may not forsake us now. To him I commend you all. Permit me to ask that with equal sincerity and faith, you will all invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these few words, I must leave you now. For how long, I know not. Friends, one and all, I must now bid you an affectionate farewell. In all this passage, there is a sense of tragic foreboding, 
the years of war and death to be climaxed in victory by the murder of the president himself. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln is, of course, an essential part of his legend. It's a perfect picture of the good and great man struck down with a sort of tragic justice in the very moment of his completed accomplishment. There are, of course, many stories of this event. One of the most striking that I have seen is contained, oddly enough, in the testimony of the trial of those conspirators who were involved in Lincoln's death. From a new edition of this testimony entitled The Assassination of President Lincoln and the Trial of the Conspirators, edited by Philip Van Doren Stern, I have excerpted these few passages which recount with a raw immediacy the events of that night in April 1865. My name is... Joseph M. Dye. On the evening of the 14th of April, I was sitting in front of Ford's Theater about half past nine o'clock. I observed several persons whose appearance excited my suspicion, conferring together upon the pavement. First who appeared was, a, was an elegantly dressed gentleman. He came out of the passage and commenced conversing with a, a ruffinly-looking fellow. And then another appeared, and the three they conversed together. It was then drawing near the second act. Uh, uh, the one that appeared to be the leader, the well-dressed one, said, uh, I, I think he'll come out now. He was referring to the president, I suppose. Uh, I was invited by Sergeant Cooper to have some oysters, and, well, we had barely time to get seated in the saloon and order the oysters when a man came running in and said the president was shot. Well, we all got excited then. We... My name is Joseph Burroughs. I carry bills for Ford's Theater during the daytime, stand at the stage door at night. I knew John Wilkes Booth. He used to attend his horse and see that it was fed and cleaned. I heard the report of the pistol. I was out by the bench, but I'd gotten off when Booth came out. He told me to give him his horse. He struck me with the butt of a knife and knocked me down. He did this as he was mounting his horse with one foot in the stirrup. He also kicked me, and then he rode off immediately. My name is James P. Ferguson. I had a seat in Ford's Theater, directly opposite the president's box, in the front rest circle. I saw the president and his family when they came in, accompanied by uh, Miss Harris and Major Rathburn. It was uh, somewhere near 10 o'clock during the second scene of the third act of Our American Cousin, that was the play, and I saw Booth pass along near the president's box and, and then stop and lean against the wall. And after standing there a moment, I saw him step down one step, put his hands in the door and his knee against it and, and push the door open. The first door that goes into the box, that was. Well, I saw no more of him until he made a rush for the front door of the box and then he, he jumped over. He put his left hand on the railing and with his right he seemed to strike back with a knife. I could see the knife gleam, and the next moment he was over the box. As he went over, his hand was raised. The handle of his knife was up. The blade was down. The president uh, sat in the left-hand corner of the box with Mrs. Lincoln at his right. And Miss Harris, she was in the right-hand corner. Major Rathbun, he was sitting back at her left, almost in the corner of the box. Well, at the moment the president was shot, he was leaning his hand on the railing, looking down at the somebody in the orchestra holding the flag that decorated the box aside to look between it and the post. I saw the flash of the pistol right back in the box, and as the person jumped over and lit on the stage, I saw it was Booth. As he struck the stage, he, he rose and he exclaimed, Sic Semper Tyrannis. 
And then he ran directly across the stage to the opposite door where the actors come in. I am Major Henry Rathbun. On the evening of the 14th of April last, at about 20 minutes past 8 o'clock, I, in company with Miss Harris, left my residence at the corner of 15th and 8th Streets and joined the President and Mrs. Lincoln and went with them in their carriage to Ford's Theater on 10th Street. On reaching the theater, when the presence of the President became known, the actors stopped playing, the band struck up Hail to the Chief, the audience rose and received him with vociferous cheering. The party proceeded along in the rear of the dress circle and entered the box that had been set apart for their reception. On entering the box, there was a large armchair that was placed nearest the audience, farthest from the stage, which the president took and occupied during the whole of the evening, with one exception. When he got up to put on his coat and returned and sat down again, when the second scene of the third act was being performed, and while I was intently observing the proceedings on the stage with my back toward the door, I heard the discharge of a pistol behind me, and looking around, saw through the smoke a man between the door and the president. The distance from the door to where the president sat was about four feet. At the same time, I heard the man shout some word, which I thought was freedom. I instantly sprang toward him and seized him. He wrested himself from my grasp. He made a violent thrust at my breast with a large knife. The man rushed to the front of the box, and I endeavored to seize him again, but I only caught his clothes as he was leaping over the railing of the box. The clothes, as I believe, were torn in the attempt to hold him. And as he went over upon the stage, I cried out, Stop that man! Then I turned to the president's. His position wasn't changed. His head was slightly bent forward. His eyes were closed. I saw that he was unconscious, and supposing him mortally wounded, I rushed to the door for the purpose of calling medical aid. My name is Robert Kingstone. I'm a practicing physician in this city, and was the family physician of the President of the United States. I was sent for by Mrs. Lincoln immediately after the assassination. I arrived in a very few moments and found that the president had been removed from the theater to the house of a gentleman living directly opposite and had been carried into the back room of the residence and was there placed upon a bed. I found a number of gentlemen, citizens around him and others, two assistant surgeons of the army who had brought him over from the theater and who had attended to him. Of course, they immediately gave the case over to my care, knowing my relations to the family. I proceeded to examine the president and found that he had received a gunshot wound in the back part of the left side of his head, into which I carried my finger. I at once informed those around that the case was a hopeless one, that the president would die, that there was no positive limit to the duration of his life, that his vital tenacity was very strong, he would resist as long as any man could, but that death certainly would soon closed the scene. I remained with him, doing whatever was in my power, assisted by my friends. But of course, he died from the wound next morning at about half past seven. Lincoln's death, <clears throat> as we see it in the perspectives of history, was no end for anyone save himself. It marked no ending for the conquered south of the troubled north, no ending for his unhappy and tortured wife. Perhaps it is better to focus, as Sandberg does, on that long, dolorous funeral procession 
which wound halfway across the nation and ended in Springfield, Illinois. Evergreen carpeted the stone floor of the vault. On the coffin, sat in a receptacle of black walnut, they arranged flowers carefully and precisely. They poured flowers as symbols. They lavished heaps of fresh flowers as though there, there never could be enough to tell either their hearts or his. And the night came with great quiet, and there was rest. The prairie years, the war years, were over. You have been listening to Americana, the 18th in a series of radio essays dealing with American history and American living, presented each week by Northwestern University in cooperation with station WMAQ. Americana is written and narrated by Martin Maloney. Direction is by Ralph Knowles. Music supervision by Maury Street Matter. Engineering by Ed Gollick. The quoted materials were read by myself, Bill Grisky. This is NBC Radio.